In my quest to profile the most interesting products and services that are going global, my guest today is Jennifer Kleinhens, a customer service strategy director for Havas CX Helia based in London. As well as working for Havas CX, Jennifer is also an author and educator running choicehacking.com, an educational resource for learning to apply behavioral science to customer experience and marketing. The author of five books about customer experience, she hosts the Choice Hacking Podcast, a series of beautifully edited podcasts on behavioral science as it relates to branding, business, and the customer experience. She has advised a number of blue chip large organizations on their customer journey, deriving fascinating conclusions from in-depth analysis of their processes and delivering significant value from her data-driven and strategic advisory work. Welcome, Jennifer, and it's great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, amazing. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. One of the reasons I was really interested to have you on the podcast is my background is in asset management, investing based primarily on behavioral finance ideas. So I was intrigued when I heard about your work focusing on behavioral science as it applies to the customer experience. What drew you, a couple of questions, what drew you into this space? Did you feel there was a gap in terms of firms' understanding of the customer experience? And if so, what kind of problems were you hoping to solve? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it it's an interesting one too, because I feel like with marketing, like a lot of things, I, I kind of fell into it. I just found something that I thought, you know, it was creative, it was business-driven, it was really interesting to me because I had actually spent the first part of my career in the music industry. So I was a classical violinist for like 12, 13 years. You know, I was, I was young. I was kind of touring around and doing that. And I started businesses as a part of that because it was always, it's kind of like acting, right? You're always waiting for the next gig. And I never liked being in that position of waiting for someone to be like, yes, you get a job. And I'm like, no, no, no. I wanted to make my own opportunities. So I started um, putting together like music booking companies, just little things here and there to try to drum up some gigs. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, you know what? I like business a lot better than I like <laughs> practicing eight hours a day. My fingers are bleeding and, you know, it's, it's, it's tough work being a working musician. So, you know, I went back to school and kind of went into marketing and advertising. I think partially, to be honest, because Mad Men was a really popular show. I had a grandfather who had worked like in, you know, in the Mad Men era in advertising. And I saw it as a good combination of sort of creative thinking and business or like harder skills. And so for me, I was like, oh, this is perfect. I can be my creative self. I can be my business self. And, you know, advertising is a great kind of place to do that. I think after some time in the industry, you know, being client side at at and and then going to agencies and kind of traveling the world and doing things. Um, I, I did find myself in customer experience, I think, because although I was creative, I was also very pragmatic. So I think what always would frustrate me would be, oh, I see like a beautiful TV commercial, but then I go into your store and it's terrible. <laughs> or like your website is awful. And, you know, I was just somebody who thought, well, this seems like an opportunity. I really enjoy working on these things. I was sort of a self-taught, you know, like coders are really, that's a, that's a, a very strong word for what I was, you know, at the time I was like building websites and teaching myself things. So I thought, you know, this is really fascinating. And actually when I went back to school, while I was still working, I, I went and got an MBA at Emory University down in uh, Atlanta and just came across like behavioral economics in a consumer psychology class, which to me, I was like blown away by it. You know, they were just 
bringing out all these things, the system one, the system two, people are rational. They say one thing, they do something else. I was like, oh, this is fascinating. It's like detective work. So that's when I started getting you know, interested in it. And I think it was just years and years of managing customer experiences and kind of knowing about behavioral economics and behavioral science. And then starting to think like, well, why aren't these two things joining together? You know what I mean? There needs to be, I think, a different way to take behavioral economics or behavioral science and interject it into a customer experience. Because, you know, up until that point, it seems like, you know, people like Rory Sutherland and, um, you know, others, I think, have been really good at saying, like, let's apply behavioral science principles, but not in a very, like, methodical way. They would basically say like, oh, this is an example of loss aversion, or this is an example of the Ikea effect. But nobody was looking at a customer experience or a customer journey map, as far as I could tell, and trying to get like a macro view. Like what are the golden rules that behavioral science would teach us about customer experience and how we might apply, you know, those two things together to create something that's better for the business and better for the customer as well. That's fascinating. In your work, there are a number of references to terms that I think many people will have never heard of. And you mentioned just one of those. So for example, the Ikea effect or choice overload, I think you mentioned the salience bias and the peak mm -hmm. end rule. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of these phenomenon and your approach to analyzing these? Sure. So maybe a good bridge from, from what I was just kind of sewing up here around the macro view. So peak end rule, I think, is probably what I would call the golden rule of behavioral science in customer experience. And basically what it says, as I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, if there's any like actual research scientist, but I'm putting it in layman's terms, um, essentially like people don't remember an entire experience based on the average of every moment, right? So it's not like I had some good parts, I had some bad parts, oh, it was kind of okay. Nobody does that, right? So it's based off of, your memories are based off of the peak, the emotional peak, which could be good or bad, and then the end of your experience. And so to me, as somebody who's designing customer journeys, I mean, that's really fascinating, right? Because just from a practical point of view, you know, I don't have a billion dollar budget to fix this customer experience. And if I really want to move the needle, now I know, well, I really only have to look in two places, right? I need to prioritize the emotional peak or trough, depending on what kind of experience you have, um, and then the endings. And so that is something that I think, you know, from a macro view, now I can look at an entire customer journey and say, hey, you know, we know this particular moment is maybe not like the sexiest part of the customer journey. I mean, the peak or the end might just be, you know, when I throw away my garbage at the end of you know, eating at a fast food joint. And the, and the same thing with the ending. I think a lot of a lot of brands, and, and we kind of talked about this in the, the pre-discussion, but I think a lot of brands really they don't get that ending quite right. They don't really know where that ending is. And we can circle back to that. But I think to me, that's a really fascinating one is how do we kind of, you know, perfect those two moments? I would say some other key ones for me as well, like salience is a big one. Um, and I always like to say like information or visual salience, because in the brand and advertising world, there's also brand salience, which is a slightly different, different uh, thing. <laughs> but in terms of visual salience, it's basically just like, do I notice what you're trying to tell me? Right. I mean, we know in advertising and marketing, like I think on average, it, the data says different things. The stat that I like to use is people will look at a, a piece of marketing collateral in a store for about 0.3 seconds, which is like if they even look at it at all. Right. Like they may not even see it. And if they do, they just glance at it. So I think as marketers, it becomes really important to understand, well, OK, well, what do people see when they're glancing at our our creative? You know what I mean? Is it beautiful? Because it should be. Is it creative? 
but is it also effective? Does it deliver on what we needed to do strategically? So I think those are two big ones. Let me think. Ikea effect is another one. Maybe we should talk about that one since I came, I came up with it. But um, I came up with it. I didn't come up with the Ikea effect. Sorry. I raised the, the topic. Whoa. <laughs> I could see the headlines. Um, no, so much smarter people than me came up with the Ikea effect. I, I believe it's Dan Ariely and then some of his team who are at Harvard. And actually the paper is, I, I believe the paper is actually called When Labor Leads to Love. And that's a great example of what the Ikea effect is. And if anybody who's listening has been to an Ikea, you know, you go through this whole process, you do the whole thing in this giant, giant maze. Yeah, this giant like maze of a, a building that smells like meatballs. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh my God, the furniture's not even put together. So you take it home, and you put it together. And actually what they find is, is that people who have constructed Ikea furniture, if they put them into an, um, an auction where they have to like bid for something they've, they've made, um, these people would bid more for something that they had constructed, despite the fact that it's like cheaper furniture than maybe another piece of furniture, because when they had actually co-created it, it meant more to them. It's a little bit of like the endowment effect in this in the same way, right? Like ownership basically creates like emotional bonds that we don't want to break. And I think the co-creation kind of works with that, right? To to kind of feel like we owned or, or created something, despite the fact that we just put in those those teeny tiny little IKEA screws with the special little Allen wrench. You know, it's it's not rocket science, but we help create it. And so it's one of those um, sort of key behavioral science principles. I think it's good for you know brands and sort of businesses to apply. Can you think? Are there some other examples uh, where the IKEA effect comes into play, or where you can utilize that? bias with some other brands, perhaps, yeah. other companies? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a few different ways that you can apply, apply something like the IKEA effect. I think co-creation is probably the clearest one. So, you know, the example that I would give, you know, for the Americans in the audience, I, I don't believe Build-A-Bear is an international <laughs> juggernaut. I think they're just in the U.S. But for anyone who is not in the U.S., if you go into a mall, basically anywhere in America, they have this place called Build-A-Bear, which is where, you know, kids go in and they can build these bears, they can put in um, little things that like say, you know, words and they can record stuff and they can put the clothes on it and they can stuff it and they can do the whole thing. But basically they co-create this very expensive bear or other kind of stuffed animal. And that's a great example because, you know, Build-A-Bear has basically created an entire business around this idea that people become bonded to something that they create. You know, I don't have any stats to back this up, but you can see just from the results, the fiscal results from, you know, the brand itself is that I'm willing to bet that kids actually play with that toy more. You know, they value it more. They don't want to give it away like they might, you know, with another toy that somebody just gave to them because they help create it. So it's, again, it's that emotional sort of ownership endowment effect. It's working with the Ikea effect to make it really sticky for customers. They become but vested I, in the process, yeah. right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say there's probably one other point just to make around IKEA effect is it's not always about co-creation, which I think a lot of people kind of stop there and say, "Oh, it's co-creation," but my, you know, my product is not a co-creation type of product. You know, you were seeing, I think, for quite a few years, and I, I actually was involved with one at AT and T, where these crowdsourcing platforms for brands. So Lego has one, I believe it's called Lego Ideas, where you can basically go in and say, like, "Hey, I want you to make a friends coffee shop Lego set." And they're like, okay, if you get enough votes, you know, they make your, they make your friend's coffee shop Lego set. I mean, anything that to, to that level, or even like if you go into like a Converse or into Converse's uh, website, or if you go to Nike's website, 
you can sort of co-create, you can personalize a pair of shoes uh, within, of course, their parameters, right? Like you can't really do anything. But again, I think it's something that, you know, brands have kind of seen if they let customers control a teeny bit of the process and sort of personalize a product that they end up making the brand a lot stickier. Interesting. That's really interesting. And then what about choice overload? I think this is one that, that I kind of love. Yeah, this is, this is one I probably pull out every single day. Um, no kidding. No lie. It's like every day I have to talk with somebody about choice overload. It's basically this idea. It's, it's tied up with another idea called the choice paradox with a, a guy named a professor. Barry Schwartz wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice, which I would highly recommend to read. It's very readable. It's really easy to digest. If not, you can also look up. He did a talk at Google that's like an hour long. That's really good. If you're like me and, you know, I can only read so much. But basically, choice overload says that if there are too many choices, can, people can become like overwhelmed and anxious. They can get that sort of analysis paralysis where they don't want to make a choice. And actually, if you look at the research, what it, what it seems to say, at least it does to me as I read it and sort of look at the results, is that a lot of choices will overwhelm people and they won't want to make a decision. But a few fewer choices will actually get people to choose. It'll get people to buy or convert in sort of the language of business, right? So that means that you have something like Netflix is a good example. Like Netflix has about 50,000 titles. Like that's a lot of content. And if you've noticed, 50,000 titles don't fit on their homepage, but they do use some really clever things to kind of raise the right things for you to look at, right? So it's like, if you watch this, you might like that. This is some stuff that's trending. This is the top 10 in your country. Now, I would say they probably haven't perfected it because it's still really hard to figure out what to watch on Netflix. But, you know, half half the time, 80% of the time, depending on who you are, you probably pick something, don't you? Just based off of what that category might be. So I think that's a good example of like, you know, people join Netflix because it has, well, among other reasons, but because it has a lot of content, it has a lot of award-winning content, but they stick around because they actually can convert them into watching something. True. So interesting. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of that. You hear about that in grocery stores, too many sauces, too many yeah. dressings, these kinds of things, right? That makes people maybe not purchase, right? Well, it's interesting too, because like, not to make it personal, but like after after having grown up in the US and then moved to other countries, like like Europe, for instance, like, I mean, you know, like the stores are not as big. And then I go back to the US and I haven't obviously been able to go back for a little while, but Every time I go back, I want to go to a grocery store. It's the first thing I ask to do. And I go and I look and there's like a salad dressing aisle. And the aisle is like longer than like the entire the entire grocery store, I feel like, that we use, you know, here in the UK. So and true. it's, you know, I love it, but I never pick any salad dressing. I just want to experience <laughs> it. I just want to look at the plethora of like wishbone varieties that exist. That's and then I'm like, forget it. I don't really want salad dressing. It's too many. I can't choose. <laughs> <laughs> can't settle on one, right? Yeah. I love it. Um, now, one of the bits I found most interesting in your book was your description of brands frequently getting their endings wrong. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest mistake I see brands making is not really knowing where the end of their experience is. And the example that I always like to pull out, I mean, is Disney. And Disney basically does everything right when it comes to customer experience. I mean, they're just one of those places where everything they do, I just look at them like, I want to be an Imagineer. I don't, I, I can't be an engineer. Just let me imagine things. These are great. Um, but basically when Disneyland was being constructed, and if you're familiar, there's Disney World, which is in Florida, and there's Disneyland, which is in California. 
And I think it was the 60s that Disneyland opened. So it was a while ago. People were taking regular photos. There were no digital photos. No one had a phone in their hand. That's what it was about. And actually, Disney figured out that, well, the end of our experience isn't when people walk out of the park. The end of your experience is when you look at the photos you took when you went to Disneyland. And so actually, Disney worked with Kodak. And they figured out what are the right colors for like the paths and the flowers? What will look the most vibrant in a picture, in a, specifically in a Kodak photograph? So that then when people go back and look at their memories, their photos, oh, well, that's the true ending of the experience. And oh, oh we must have had an amazing time because these photos look great. So like that's a great example of like a brand where you would think most people would just say, well, the end is the end. Like you're gone. You walk out of the park. Like you're not my problem anymore. <laughs> yeah, just to put it in terrible terms, you know, for some businesses that are like, Ugh, get out of here, you're done. Yeah, but Disney got, knows. I've got your money. We move on, right? <laughs> yeah, but Disney knows that if they want to get you back in that park, they need to make it feel like you had the most magical time ever. And making even more beautiful photos is a part of that. Absolutely. So that's always the example I use. That is so interesting. Um, so actually, to, to bring some concrete examples, maybe from your advertising marketing experience, um, there might be some confidentiality constraints, I realize, in terms of maybe custom yeah. games or, or performance results <laughs> that you might not be able to disclose in detail here. But what are some of your favorite examples of how your work with brands has created tangible value? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting one, because I think to your point, it's Oh, it's not always fun because you kind of have to speak in generalities. But like, you know, I think I am a big believer that, you know, when you look at behavioral science things, when you look at things like peak end, it's oftentimes in the least sexy place that you find the biggest impact for brands. So an example I would give you, maybe we won't go into specifics, but think of fast food. <laughs> think of a fast food restaurant, a big one, a big American one that's in a lot of places. How about that? Um <laughs> And we'll imagine. We'll imagine. We'll okay. Imagine what it could be. Okay. Um, but in that very last moment, like right as you're about to walk out of the door, there a very unsexy thing happens, and that is you have to throw your garbage away. Okay. Like nobody wants to throw their garbage away. It's not fun. It's not glamorous. Like no matter what you do, throwing your own garbage away just stinks, right? But that was something where you know we identified like, hey, that's the end of the experience, isn't it? You know, it's it's that, and then kind of the thank you that you get when you walk out of the door. But, you know, it seems like, you know, that was a, a place where there was a lot of missed opportunity in the past to basically like optimize that experience. But, you know, if you, you talk to most brands and you'd say like, hey, let's make your, your garbage experience better, they, they'd be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know why. But that, you know, that, that was something that we kind of started, you know, working on. And I think it's a great example to me of, again, it's not super sexy, but you know what? It makes a huge difference in how customers actually experience your brand. It's little things like that, like keeping things clean, being consistent, building trust with customers um, that, you know, you're not going to get across like in a big, beautiful Super Bowl ad. But that's the stuff that keeps people coming back to your store, to your website, whatever it might be, and, and kind of creating those return customers. I mean, I think if, if there's one thing I can maybe leave people with who are in these big brands who are considering like, well, how could I, how could I use behavioral science? I think that's just the simplest way to start to me. And that's always where I tend to start, um, you know, when I'm working with a new brand, whether it's an established brand or started brand or whatever, it's like, you've got to think about what those peaks and ends are. And a mistake I see a lot of brands making is 
you know, when you talk about the end of the experience, again, the end of the experience might be out of your hands. So I won't get specific on this. This is not a brand I've worked on, but <laughs> there's there are some brands that have very interesting choices in fulfillment partners. They have beautiful digital experiences. It's The website is great. The choosing process is easy. I'm not overwhelmed. Everything's wonderful. And then their delivery partners cannot find my flat. They won't call me. They throw stuff over. It's broken when I get it. It's like, <laughs> you know, it was great. But guess what? Now I hate you because you're a person who is your like delivery arm. That is the last leg of your experience. And I think, you know, that it's and look, there's no easy solution to things like this, right? If you look at Amazon, I mean, Jeff Bezos, like, God love him. I think his solution for everything is just, oh, well, we can't find any good, you know, fulfillment partners. Forget it. We'll just build an entire fleet of people who deliver our stuff. So that's obviously not the solution for everybody. But I think it's a good example if you kind of compare, you know, the Amazons of the world with, you know, other, you know, e-commerce brands that are relying on third-party fulfillment or fulfillment or delivery, I should say. There's there's a huge difference. But then you know, then you have to say like, well, as a business, like, am I going to put all this time and effort into something that is within my control and then make a terrible decision based off of cost or convenience or whatever it might be that sort of goes back and erases all that good work that I've done? You talked about being thoughtful about and managing the entire customer journey with your company or brand. And I thought this was really great framing. I think you alluded to something just now. I think many companies mistakenly kind of compartmentalize mm -hmm. what from the customer's point of view is actually one overall brand experience, right? Including the delivery, as you say, right from the you know first time you touch the website or see the marketing mm -hmm. all the way through to the delivery company getting the product to you. So it amuses me when a company maybe surveys me about one sliver of the customer <laughs> experience, right? Somebody but, has to get their bonus. Just, right. That's <laughs> why. That's why you get that so survey. Funny. Uh, somebody will say, how did you find our app? And, you know, I might be at that very moment, very frustrated about yeah. the fact that they can't deliver me certain products that I've specifically come to them to buy. And they really yeah. are only surveying me about how did you find our app? Well, I couldn't care less about your app if I can't get the product that I, you know, or the, mm -hmm. the service that I actually came to you. Uh, and it gets willfully, let's say, ignored by the survey. So how do you encourage your clients to look at the journey versus maybe the touch points when you're designing their mm -hmm. customer experience? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting one because, you know, being a customer experience like strategist, this is a constant, I want to say a battle, it's a constant like struggle of attention. And it's true for me, as true as it is for clients, right? Like there are two levels on which you need to perform. And if you're a big company, you know, in a global environment, it's competitive, it's hard, like you have to pay attention to a lot of things. But to your point around like, you know, silos, I mean, that's true. It's it's always true. And you'll, you know, you'll have the app team send out that survey and they're like, oh, look, you know, our NPS score is this. Well, our NPS score is that. You know, I, I think you do have to pay attention to touch points. But I think too often, because like building a website is a specialist skill. Like inside of a company, if you have people who are like an internal team of designers and UX people, like they're really good at that. That's the thing that they've studied, you know, forever and ever. And the same thing in an agency. Like the agencies are, you know, full of a lot of specialists because they're really good at what they do. And that's why they get hired to go into companies. But in agencies, just like in brands, you know, it's at the connection points where things fall down. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not usually like the website could be great. And the phone, you know, like what we would call in the UK, telephony, right? Like call centers might be terrible. But 
if you then make the call setters good, but then they're completely divorced from the website experience, well, then it's still just as bad because you have two good things that are not connected at all. So as a customer, you're like, I don't understand why you just can't make these things work together. And sadly, you want to talk about Amazon and Netflix, right? Like the expectations from customers are now being set by the market, right? So if I am, I don't know, Burger King, and I have a customer who orders from Amazon, and they're used to getting everything seamlessly and cheap, and it comes the next day, they don't care that I'm Burger King. They just want me to be the Amazon of burgers. Like that's all they know, right? And, and that's fine because, you know, their business is not walking around all day thinking about our brand and going like, oh, I really empathize with them because they had a reorg and, you know what I mean? Like digital is now separated from retail and I totally understand. It's totally fine. No, they don't care. So I think to answer your question, this is kind of a long-winded answer, but you have to measure both, right? And I think for me, having been, you know, client side and having been agency side, there's there's different sort of skill sets, but I think they need to share someone who a kind of owns the customer experience they own those connection points and that person client side needs to have you know executive sponsorship they need to be taken seriously and you know they they're not there to kind of micromanage like what's on the website they're there to make sure that things are consistent and a lot of times to be honest like that person gets a bad rap because it feels like they're raining on everybody's parade but in actual fact what they're doing is making everything sort of you know seamless and, and smooth for a customer and I think on the agency side as well, like, you know, the more agencies start and consultancies as well, start to go down the CX path. There's two things to keep in mind, really, is what what do you think about? Like, what is CX to you? Because it could be anything from a website to call centers to support to any myriad of just like touch points that a lot of agencies and consultancies sort of specialize in. Or are you somebody who's doing a little bit of that specialist work, but the problem that you're solving for clients is really in the connection points because either that person doesn't exist on the client side or they do and they don't have enough subjectivity or they don't have enough arms or people to kind of help them do what they need to do. And even then, if you have people that own sort of the customer experience internal to a company, I mean, companies are big. Like it's hard to manage things. It's hard to know everything that's going on. So a lot of times you need a consult a consultancy or an agency partner kind of you know, going out and doing those different projects in different parts of the company to come back and sort of share that knowledge with you. And if that CX owner doesn't exist on the client side, a lot of times as, you know, an agency or consultancy, like you kind of have to step into that role, you know, which is hard sometimes to say like, hey, have you talked to this person or talked to that person? But I think, you know, despite where you're sitting, it's it's really necessary to have someone who is sort of peppered throughout the organization to do that. And, and again, like, all these solutions, like it's easy for me to say because I'm on a podcast, right? But I also do it every day. So I know it is not an easy thing. Like it's easy for me to say it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, when I was at AT&T, God knows how many employees they have now. But when I was there, they had 300,000 employees. I mean, you would run off and like work on stuff and be like, oh, is there a whole team that does this? And you would just, you know, like have to kind of figure out like, oh, that's the first thing you would ask when you do a project. Is so-and-so doing this? Are they doing that? Who do I talk to? I mean, that's what 80% of your time would be spent doing is making connections in the company. Wow. Um, so yeah. And achieving consistency would be hard with that many individuals, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, really hard. So I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by what makes brand building successful. I, I really enjoyed, for example, Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And, and along that same vein, I recently picked up a book by David Ogilvy, the British mm -hmm. copywriting legend, called On Advertising. I, 
at the time I was hoping to learn more about longer term, broad, data-based fundamental principles of advertising. You know, basically what, mm -hmm. what I mean by fundamental is I wanted to avoid kind of diving into a niche that tells you how to say perfectly game one social media app or feature. Instead, I, I wanted to learn about timeless, research-based, mm -hmm. effective advertising ideas and mm -hmm. elements that really relate to the hum human nature and aren't going to change from one platform to another online. Mm -hmm. um, and the book had a number of great and sometimes surprising insights. And in keeping with your firm, Havas CX's background, he was a major advocate of direct mail. So counterintuitive. Oh, yeah. counter <laughs> I'm still a big, I'm still a big advocate of Are direct you? mail. It's having a renaissance. At well, the minute, this, actually, because this of... is actually what I wanted. You know, he was confident that according to the data, it really works. And I, yeah. I wanted to ask you if you still felt that was the case. Like, what are your thoughts on direct mail? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's it's interesting because you know Ogilvy was kind of around in the sixties and seventies, right? Which is sort of that golden age of advertising because, in a way, like the channels were much more limited, and I think honestly because measurement was more limited. In some ways, it gave the agencies a lot more freedom to kind of do things because it was hard to measure. So you just say like, oh, beautiful television commercial and some billboards and that'll be it. Yeah, I think I think now there's so many channels and I think you just kind of have to figure out what works for you. I think actually um, I just spoke to Vogue Business about this, <laughs> about direct mail. Yeah. And like how luxury, um, how luxury brands are sort of utilizing it and, and sort of the opportunity for it in the future. But if you think about a brand, like there's different brands use DM in different ways, right? So if you're like Chanel, I'm just totally pulling a random like luxury brand out of nowhere. If you create something that's like a beautiful like brand book that's just these glossy photographs and you send it out to some of your like best customers who come in and spend tens of thousands of dollars or pounds or euros or whatever it might be in a Chanel store or stores, like that is a, technically a piece of direct mail. It probably costs you I don't know, 50 bucks to put together in print, maybe a hundred, maybe 200, but it becomes an extension of your brand. So for a brand like Chanel, that makes sense. Now, does that make sense for like, I don't know, Walmart to do? Probably not, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, there's scale issues, there's brand issues. It doesn't match from a brand perspective, but I'm willing to bet that if you talk to somebody at Walmart about their brand mailer that goes out every week with the coupons and all that stuff, it still works really well for them. It's probably how the majority of people find out that things are on special at Walmart is literally just opening the Sunday paper and flicking through and looking at coupons. But like I said, I mean, I think I'm a huge advocate of DM. I think you have to be careful on how you use it. Obviously, like there's a lot of opportunities for like targeting and data and all of that fun stuff as well. But I think to your point about brand building, like it really does have to match the brand. And I think that's that's the big thing. It's interesting you say it's having a renaissance. Do you think that that's in the data? You're seeing people kind of turning back to it and using it more? Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because like when you talk about direct mail, you could be talking about like catalogs. You could be talking about, you know, just like mailers and things. But I think because of like particularly in Europe, I think because we've had a lot of lockdowns, you know, there's a lot going on in the digital space, but people are kind of burnt out on things like Zoom. You know, like you get up in the morning and you're on meetings all day and it's back to back to back and going out and getting the mail became sort of a ritual. That's like a nice sort of calming thing because it's not digital because there are limitations to how many screens I can look at. I, I seem to test that limit every day, but you know, <laughs> how many days, how much, how long can I stare at a computer screen and then stare at my phone and then stare at Netflix? 
we'll find out one day. But basically, like people were finding it really soothing to hear sort of the postman or the mailman leave the mail, go out, kind of look through things, spend some time. It was quiet. It wasn't digital. And people were really enjoying it. So I think you have seen a lot of brands still kind of on that trajectory of like, oh, we've had a catalog for years and years. And we want to make it digital. But I think what they're finding when they're, they've spent all these this time kind of going digital, digital, digital is that it becomes really hard to stand out in a digital marketplace because unless customers are searching for you, it becomes harder for them to find you. So I'll give you a good example. So Alexa with voice searches. So if I say to Alexa, Alexa, I need to buy some batteries. It doesn't put Duracell in my basket. It puts Amazon brand batteries in my basket, which is why Amazon brand batteries are the number one selling brand of batteries on Amazon (laughs) because people don't think, oh, I just saw a Duracell commercial. Amazon, put Duracell in my basket. Nobody says that. They just say, hey, put batteries in my basket. So it's this kind of thing. It's you talking about long-term brand building becomes incredibly important when we start thinking about the different ways that people are interacting and how you find things in a digital space. Like being at the top of someone's mind is incredibly powerful. That is amazing. I did not know that. Love yeah. that. That's, that's a really interesting tidbit. Yeah. Um, there was one other... Ogilvy insight I actually wanted to ask you about. Um, David Ogilvy advocated for long copy over short copy. So his view was was not in fact that more readers would read all the way down if if you wrote really long advertising copy. Rather, he said, actually, you do lose a lot of readers in the long copy, but the ones who stay with you, like the 5% that stay and read all the way down, they're your buyers. So Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I wondered if you felt that still held, or do you think that we're in a sort of low attention span generation and that that, that might no longer be the case? I think it depends on what you're selling, to be honest. Um, I think like you see this a lot in online courses and, you know, I, sorry, I'll do one small bit of shilling. So I sell online courses through choice hacking. And so I spent a lot of time like examining, like what do sales pages look like? And, you know, taking courses, kind of breaking down things, mostly because of what you're saying. I find it really interesting that people say things like that, like, oh, long copy, you know, works better for us because it basically like cleanses the funnel of everyone who isn't a buyer. It's sort of like the Nigerian prince approach. So you've heard this, that like, you know, these, <laughs> these people send out these emails where they're like, you know, the Nigerian prince has died and left you $65 million. I need you to wire me your social security number and your bank account. But the thing is, is like people, you know, people who look at that, who are savvy think, oh, I would never do that. But they don't want you because they know you're not gullible enough to give them all the information that they need. So they're sending these emails that are like misspelled and don't make any sense because they're trying to weed the funnel out. So in a more ethical way, I think, yes, long copy can work. Um, But again, I don't know if, if you're selling Doritos, like I'm not sure that long, like a super long piece of copy is right. But I could be wrong. Like, I mean, Doritos could run like a a print ad that is a short story about how cool Doritos are or like the origin story of Doritos. And that may be great. It may really compel people to do that. You know, I I think Jack Daniels has done some really recent stuff where at at least here in London, you know, you see it in the tube. They have these tube ads that are long stories and it works really well because you're waiting for the tube and you don't want to take your phone out again because you're tired of looking at screens and you're just trying to, you know, make sure that everything's okay and you're going to be safe while you're waiting for this train. And then you're staring and you're reading like this very lovely story about the origins of Jack Daniel's whiskey. And like, that's something, again, it's, it's the context. Like, is it in the right context? Is it the right product? Is it the right story? And, you know, is it compelling? Is it something I want to get involved in? 
So maybe I should take back my comment about Doritos. Maybe Doritos <laughs> could do a great piece of long copy about and I'm misjudging origin, them. Their origin yeah. story, right? Well, tell me yeah. a little bit more about the courses that you offer. Yeah. So at the minute we have two courses up. Um, we have how to create persuasive experiences, which is basically the behavioral science bit is kind of how do 